0: Well listen, it's a joy to be here. Uh, you're in John, so we're going to turn to John chapter 19. I'm going to jump right into things, because there's a great passage that I've been handed to, um, to speak from, and there's a lot in there, and so I want to jump, jump right into things. Uh, we're going to be looking at a passage that Whether you've gone to church all your life or maybe this is your first time or or recently, um, it's a a pretty familiar story. There's a lot of familiar events, familiar characters that we'll read about this morning. And what happens sometimes is when something is so familiar, you miss the help that's right in front of you. Because you just kind of gloss over it. And our brains are incredible. A couple weeks ago... um, One of our other pastors spoke, and I sat right where you are, and I was re reminded how remarkable it is of the many things you can do right now while looking at me, thoroughly engaged, quasi listening, even trying to listen, um, because you can just do so many other things. And so, my my uh, my invitation to you is this: as we have a a few minutes, um, kind of pulled out in our week to sit and really listen to some Bible teaching. Um, John 19 is packed with lots of things. I've learned a lot of things. Our church went through this gospel. a couple years ago, so I've taught through this, and uh, I was just kind of re-amazed as I re-engaged with it and, and looked at it. There's a lot here. Um, there's a little subtext to the story and to the narrative that I want to talk about first, um, just to kind of highlight for us. It's not really what the passage is about, but it's there, and the, and the way that you see it is by just looking at the people involved in John 19. So there's Pilate, who's a Roman governor. There are, there are uh, there's Caiaphas, who is a Jewish leader. Um, there's Caesar, who's the king of the land. And then there's, of course, Jesus, who they would inscribe as the king of the Jews. And if you just look at the characters in John chapter 19, here's the subtext to the passage. It's about leadership. There's a lot about leadership going on in this passage. You'll see kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly of, of leadership. Now, um, there are hordes of books written. I actually considered bringing all the books I have on leadership, raiding my other pastor's office, telling Philip, bring every book you have on leadership. Honestly, we could probably fill the stage behind me on leadership. Conferences, tons of conferences on leadership. Here's uh, Here's my thought on it is this. I don't think you should really much care what I have to say on leadership. I think that books are helpful. I read books on leadership. I like to study leadership. Um... But even those, I would take with a, with a grain of salt. Uh, my, my challenge to you is this. Consider learning from someone who today, uh, a couple thousand years after his death, has millions of people following him with undying devotion and loyalty to him. Talking about Jesus. Whatever he says about leadership probably is, is pretty worth listening to. It, it actually seems to uh, verify the claim of Christians that Jesus is still alive. That here that here, are so many people, we are gathered in the name of Jesus today. So as he talks about leadership, you ought, you ought to really listen to that. This particular text doesn't have a lot of words of his, but his life preaches. So look at his life, look at his, his actions, and you'll, you'll actually learn some things on leadership. Leadership's kind of funny. Um, when you're young, leaders are essentially picked for you. I grew up playing sports. So I had coaches and I just had coaches picked for me and teachers that, that taught me and parents that I didn't choose. And, and my leaders were just picked for me. But if you notice that as you get older, you actually get to participate in picking your own leaders, right? We all get to choose who we follow to some degree. So we have bosses and we have pastors and we have people that we follow and learn from and listen to and we have a choice. Barna did a poll recently um, and, uh, and a, a vast majority of people quit a boss and not a job. In other words, if there was a different leader in front of them, they would have totally stayed with the job. But they couldn't stand following that leader. They were dissatisfied by the by the leader for some reason. Uh, there's a great book by a guy named Joseph Stoll, and it's called Following Christ. And it's a book on followership. And here's a here's a curious thing. Go go to a go to Christianbookdistributors.com or someplace and try to find books on following uh, followership versus leadership. Uh, There'll be like a 1 to 1,000 ratio on that. Uh, But in in Following Christ, really simple title that talks what the book's about, um, he, he basically makes this comment that selecting and trusting a leader is life's most strategic pursuit. Think about how much influence is given to people that you are choosing right now to follow. Philip, for instance. Philip is someone who's shepherding this church. He's called to do that, and you're all here this morning. So I don't presume that all of you are, are following Philip and know Philip. Maybe some of you are visitors, and that's fantastic. But those that are leading you, those that you are following, really steers, uh, steers the, the course of your life. I don't know if you've ever asked to speak to the manager or maybe you've been the one that has someone asking you, can I speak to your manager? But if you ever ask to speak to the manager, what is going on in that moment? What's, what's happening? And this is a real question, not like pretend question. What's happening in that moment? Yeah, you're, you're dissatisfied. So there's something unhappy going on. You don't like the answer you're giving. And why are you asking to speak to the manager? Anyone? They're in charge. I want to get to someone who can make things happen that's different than what you're doing right here, right? That's that's essentially what's going on. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, during, during bedtime prayer, my four-year-old boy uh, was praying at bedtime, which is a very normal occurrence. Um, and I realized that I was being told on in the context of prayer <laughs> as the dad. And essentially, what my four-year-old was doing is he was he was, he was asking to speak to the manager, as it were. And so, um, and so he begins to pray, and um, he, uh, he, he prays about, about things, and, and he, um, he gives lengthy prayers. We often have to cut off, I'm not sure if this is appropriate in a pastor's home, but we often tell our kids to stop praying so we can eat. Um, <laughs> So that's just the reality of it. But he's going through his day. He's giving lots of thanks for the great day he had, for the fun that he had, and then he, and then he just shifts gears into his complaints of the day. Um, and, and we had been hiking as, as, a, as a man with seven kids. You make use of your taxes, so you go to a lot of state parks, a lot of free parks, and that kind of thing. So we're off enjoying what we already pay for. And, uh, and he starts talking about the fact, you know, the hike was a little long. The hike was a little bit longer than it should have been, and there wasn't really enough water. To, to go around and and so he's praying through you know he's praying through these things and um and he's praying enough where I actually just as we're praying I just kind of peeked at him because I'm like I'm just kind of seeing the face of this little four-year-old and honestly my first response was kind of fleshly I wanted to defend myself to God objection your honor there, there was plenty of water because there really was um see I still feel the need to to to, to justify um and, and then and then I just kind of settled in as I'm looking at my son's face praying, laying out his, his compliments for the day, laying out his complaints to the day, and going above his dad's head to the manager. I thought, man, this is beautiful. This is exactly where I want all of my kids to run to when bad leadership is put in front of them, because it will be. He's going right to the one who can do something about it, and frankly, he's going right to the one who's responsible for giving him this deadbeat dad that evidently didn't give him enough water on the hike. (laughs) The other thing that was neat is um, I love that my four-year-old is not yet old enough to manipulate other people through God talk, right? Right? where where sometimes people pray and they're really praying and they're confronting someone else across the room. Um, This is just a little kid who's just pouring out his heart to God. And I thought, man, there's so much we can learn just just from a four-year-old praying at bedtime. Without really knowing it, he was obeying the Apostle Peter's advice, which says this, cast all your worries on him because he cares for you. That's what little Eli was doing. He was just laying out his concerns for the day. The caring leadership of Jesus is on display in John chapter 19, along with some other things. You, you see a little picture of his authority. You see a picture of his provision. John, the writer, has needs just like us. He has questions. Does anyone care about my personal needs? Is it anyone who's got this whole thing or is it all on me? And guess what? We walk around with those same kind of things. Is this all on me? Am I the one that's, that's got this thing? And if, and if I drop the ball, then, then all these other things happen. It really touches on our, our insecurity, our, our anxiety, our fears. People are kind of funny about needs. Some people uh, just are drama queens about their needs. And some people utterly pretend that needs don't exist. It's a little bit of the difference between soccer players, the top you can't read, but it says pretends he's, he's, he's injured, uh, and cyclists, which uh, pretends he's okay, right? Um, now, uh, to, to be fair, uh, cyclists are so pumped full of drugs that they could withstand a direct missile hit and they'd still be okay, um, but, but it is uh, a little bit like that. John was a follower of Jesus who turned author, and he had needs exactly like us. So if you aren't a Christian here today, if you don't buy into the Bible, um, know that the author we're listening to simply came to a place where he, he wanted to follow good leadership, just like, 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 like we do. He had needs and questions. He knew in his soul he didn't have all this. He didn't have what it takes to, to really get through all that this life and the next uh, presents to him. And so he ends up putting his whole confidence in Jesus, and he tells us in his gospel that the reason he's writing is so that future people wrestling through their own questions and their own wondering about who to follow would come to believe just as he did. So that's who we're about to read in John chapter 19. Now, I know you've already been in John 10. That was a while ago, Uh, but in John 10... Um, You can stay in John 19. Uh, He records two of the I am statements that I just want to kind of remind you of. Uh, He says that um, Jesus says, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. I am the door and I am the good shepherd. The door, or some of your translations call it the gate, speaks to Jesus being the legitimate way to God. And when he reveals that he's the shepherd, it reveals that his his leadership and care are for the sheep, which in John chapter 10, if you don't translate sheep for people, you kind of miss the whole point of what he's talking about, right? The gate says, I am the Savior, enter by me. And the shepherd says, I am leader, listen to me. You have questions here this morning. Some of you are wrestling with this. Is Jesus real? Some of you have settled that one and you've moved beyond that. And here's maybe where your prayers land. Is Jesus reliable? Can I follow him? Can I trust him? Listen to not just the words of Jesus, but the sermon of his life as we read here in John chapter 19. Here's where I want to get to uh, as kind of the heart of the message this morning is who who killed Jesus. That's really what we're looking at in in John chapter 19. Killing Jesus was the biggest crime in all of history, if you consider the fact that Jesus is the single most popular person in all of history. So who killed him matters. Um, When something clearly is wrong and you come upon the scene and that matters to you, your brain goes here. It's not just that something's wrong, but you could tell that not only things are, are wrong, but that someone's responsible for it. Someone did this. I thought of two examples from my week. It wasn't very challenging. Um, I had an iPod cable missing from my nightstand. <laughs> I live with three teenagers. We have a lot of I devices around our house. I came in to use said cord, and it was missing clearly something's wrong, and it didn't just walk away on its own. Okay, that's scenario number one. The second one is I came home uh, at one point, and there were literally Cheerios strewn all about not only kind of our little dining area, but flung into the living room downstairs as well. So, so these are two scenarios that are very, very common in my home. And I come upon the scene, and I say something's wrong, and someone's responsible for this, right? Now, I live uh, with two rats, um, two snakes, two cats. Yes, we're completing the food cycle. One dog, seven children, and one wife. So for me to come upon these scenes, there's a ton of detective work that goes on, right? I want to find out, A, where's my cord? Is it still working? Because I need it. B, who's responsible? So we don't have this happen again. Now, I got to the bottom of both of those mysteries this time, Um, but I want you to consider something. When something goes wrong in your life, and it's clearly someone's fault. It didn't just happen. Where does your brain go? Where does your heart go? Now consider, what if it's not just spilled milk? What if it's something really, really important? What if it's something that really, really matters? You've all been driving along the freeway at some point and seen the Amber Alert, right? And man, I don't know about you, but I am eagle-eyed at that point. I am, I am a, I'm not very good at driving at that point because I'm like looking around for this car. I want to find this car. Why? because injustice has gone on, there's a kid driving around right now, and potentially God might use me to spot the vehicle and license plate. When something goes wrong in your life, and you know someone is clearly responsible for it, you want to figure out who did it. Some of you go beyond that. I want blood. I want justice served. I was wronged, and someone did something about it. This passage answers the question, who killed Jesus? And lest we just kind of brush this away because we're so familiar with this story, it really matters. It really matters who killed Jesus. That's why John writes about it. All right, I want to, oops, I just messed it up. Sorry. That's my family. Um, uh, All right. I want to read the passage and I want you, as I read, I want you just to listen, um, watch the leaders, watch the character of the leaders emerge just as we read this probably pretty familiar narrative in John chapter 19. I'm starting in verse 1. It says this, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because, of what, because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you, not, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king But Caesar. So he delivered him to them, over to them, to be crucified. So who's responsible for killing Jesus? We could say that Pilate is responsible. Curiously, Pilate repeatedly seeks to release this one that he calls the king of the Jews. Look at chapter 18, verse 31 for a moment. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Uh, chapter eighteen, thirty-eight. I find no basis for a charge against him. In our passage today in verse 4, I find no basis for a charge against him. Verse 6, you take him and crucify him. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Sadly, Pilate fears the wrong thing. I've listened to a few of Philip's messages just to kind of get on track with where you guys have been. And one of the things that Philip's pointed out that's absolutely accurate is John keeps putting these little tidbits of information in for us. These little eyewitness accounts to say, here's what's going on. And he points out this important information. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. We see from our story today that he goes on to allow humiliation to occur with the crown of thorns and the purple. And many of you know all about that and this mocking sense that went on. And the other gospels record some other things that went on. His hope is that this will appease the Jews. His actions really reveal his heart. Pilate wanted the easy way out. He wanted to appease the people that were there. He wanted to keep his own seat of government. Pilate feared the wrong thing. Proverbs 29, 25 says this, Fear of man will prove to be a snare. What's curious about Pilate is, uh, as as you read the story as a Christian, uh, a couple thousand years later, you keep seeing him right on the cusp of truth. He's asking questions, is he not? He keeps pursuing him. He's conflicted about this Jesus. And although he's getting close and he's getting these little whiffs of truth, he keeps settling for the here, for the now. He keeps retreating back to, you know, I've got this title, I've got this position, and we can't get too into the mind of Pilate unless we start to fantasize some things. But you, but you just see that struggle that's going on, and he retreats back and stays where he's at. Pilate asks him about truth. Pilate mocks him. Pilate spares his life. Pilate is fearful. He seems to be either threatened or annoyed by Jesus' silence in this passage today. And then kind of like a yappy dog, he begins to assert his authority, right? Do you know who I am? I've got got your life in my hands right now. And that prompts Jesus to speak up. Bottom line is he's confused by him. In verse 16, the NIV translates it this way because this is the flow of the story. Finally, NIV includes, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Pilate caved. Pilate went against his instinct. Pilate went against his belief. Pilate went against the evidence. Why? To appease men, other people, and himself. It was the most expedient, comfortable way to go about this. Today, there's absolutely no shortage of ridicule pointed at Jesus, And like Pilate, many today will go along with the sarcasm, with the mocking, with the humiliation, with the abuse of Jesus. Why? Because they fear men. Why? Because they want to appease other people and they want to appease themselves. This goes on in your own family. This goes on at your workplace. This goes on at your school. This goes on in your dorm room. This goes on all around you all the time. No shortage of mockings for Jesus. And like Pilate, many people quiet their conscience, quiet the evidence, and quietly go along with what's happening. So Pilate hands him over. Did Pilate kill Jesus? You could make an argument for that. He certainly had a hand in it. Pilate played a role, but to who did he hand him over? In verse 6, the they that John is referring to are the Jewish leaders, These are the chosen people of God's people. And if Pilate had thought that this beating and mocking would suffice and kind of quench their their thirst for blood, they were wrong. Like sharks, a little bit of blood, there just became a a feeding frenzy, right? Crucify him. At this point, they they were done. Once they saw him, they went all in to, to stir up the crowd for a crucifixion. So certainly you could put the Jewish leaders. Caiaphas is named specifically as another one who killed Jesus. John clearly implicates the the temple leadership's role in the death of Jesus. Unequivocally true. If you read the four gospels, that that picture emerges very clearly. Here are some of the names that are put out for us. Pilate, Annas from last uh, chapter, Caiaphas, These are all guilty people, and now they have their names recorded for all of time. Here we are talking about them 2,000 years later. They would have never been remembered. We would never have talked about them, and they're attached to the greatest crime in history named. These all represent bad leadership. Jesus, talking about leadership, or actually uh, another New Testament writer, talks about the Gentiles lording it over you. Haven't we all had bosses that are nothing more than a title to us? They have a title. They've been given the authority, right? They're the hall pass manager, you know, manager or whatever, so all right, we'll we'll defer to them. But Gentiles lord it over other people. It's not how Christians ought to lead ever. That's bad leadership. Man, Pilate's the epitome of that. He's lording it over. Hey, don't you know who I am? That's, That's lording it over. That's bad leadership. Now, Annas and Caiaphas, two very specifically named, but there's other Jewish temple leadership here on display. They are the bad shepherds that Jesus talks about in John chapter 10. They were put there in place by God to shepherd the people. Instead, they used the sheep and feasted on them. Ezekiel 34, I think, was in Jesus' mind as he talks through John 10. Because in Ezekiel 34, the prophet is just blasting the leadership, saying you're using people for your own comfort, for your own gain, for your own fame. Just jot down John 10, 12 if you're taking notes. It says this, These bad shepherds, Annas and Caiaphas, who when they see the wolf coming, abandon the sheep and run away. Why? Because they are hired hands and they care nothing for the sheep. You can always tell bad leadership. When the going gets tough, they begin to look out for number one. And that's exactly what Caiaphas is doing here. Now curiously, this particular Passover, the leadership betrays the people even further and vow loyalty to Caesar, the earthly occupying king. an odd choice for a Jewish temple leader to be doing, to be sure. Their devotion was to their careers, could call it selfish ambition, and to their comfort rather than to the work of God. Is this not common in, in, in leadership? I mean, how do leaders go astray? They, they go astray by going after their own comfort, right? Instead of being about the work of God. And they, they go astray by selfish ambition, getting too full of themselves. Listen to James chapter three, verse 14. James 3, 14 says this, but if you harbor bitter envy, and selfish ambition in your hearts, and that's where it harbors, that's where it grows. You don't see it for a long time. Leaders can put on a really good political face. You guys have no idea what my lifestyle's like. I could be up here just blowing smoke. I brought my wife along so that you can ask her afterwards, and you know, that's a little test. My sister in law is here. But that's why, it's good to be, that's why it's good to be around leaders. That's why it's good to be with them year after year after year. You just get to see, is this a life I should be you know, not only following, but having my, my, my family learn and grow from or not? If not, move on. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. That's pretty strong language. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. I just moved a friend of mine up to Seattle. We took a two-day road trip to drive him up there, and I flew home. And the first morning there, he doesn't know a soul there. He just took a job at World Vision. And as we drove away from San Jose, I said, God, just thank you for this chapter of, of life here. He's been in our church for two years. He moved here after graduating graduated from Syracuse, and off he goes to work for World Vision. God's thrown the doors open. I said, you're already in Seattle. You're already prepping the way. We can't wait to see what you're going to do up there. First morning, we leave his house. A couple minutes from his house is a coffee shop. I need coffee in the morning, so I found it. He doesn't need it. He's stronger than I. So I went and found a little espresso shop. I'm in Seattle for Pete's sake. I've got to have some coffee, right? We walk in, and I, I, we order our things, and I see a guy sitting there with his Bible open. And I said, hey, excuse me. I said, I see you're reading a Bible. I said, um, do you go to church in the area? He goes, yeah, I go right down the street. I'm actually the pastor. I said, really? I said, well, this guy just moved here from San Jose last night. So I just kind of sat back and let them start to, start to talk. And I got talking with this guy. His name was John. I said, John, tell me about your church. So he told me about his church a little bit. By the way, here's, a, here's an interesting question. The guy asked him, Michael, my friend, he said, um, so what kind of church are you at right now? Now, he has no idea that I'm his pastor. And, so I was, and this is, uh he's amazing with words, but he's not great on the spot. And so this guy asked him, and I, I just, I'm like, I'm beaming. I'm like, this is fantastic. I get to see, like, how one of our regular Joe members just answers this question. So he answered, and he did a great job. And afterwards, I'm like, Michael, was that, was that kind of weird? He goes, yeah. He goes, I felt like I was in the principal's office, you know, but no one knew the principal was sitting there. And I said, you did amazing. I said, that was, that was really, really cool. But I asked John this question. I said, hey, what's the connection like between pastors up here? Is there selfish ambition? Is there envy going on? Or is there a spirit of unity? And it was a mixed bag, a little bit. He'd been there for 20 years. Um, and I share with him. I share with him about your guys' church. I share with him about these, you know, 5, six, seven, eight, 10, 12 churches um, th- that I know personally and that I, pr- I pray for you guys. I-, I know intimately how to pray for this church because a few pastors have just said, man, it's imperative that we as the church of San Jose um, get together and lift up the kingdom things i so appreciate about philip is he doesn't care at all about about twin oaks's name He doesn't care about your brand he doesn't care about his little taglines all the cute stuff that we all do right he he constantly prays like we all do god we want you to get the glory in fact we actually want you to work in such a way that we wouldn't even be tempted to think it's about one of us that's that's the spirit of unity that's that's the leadership that that god models for us that's a total aside and not my notes here we go was it Pilate that killed Jesus? Possibly. Was it Jewish leaders? You could certainly implicate them. So far as we read this, isn't this a little bit? I grew up with three brothers. This is a little bit like your brother getting in trouble. You're like, yeah, let him have it. You're so wrong, you're busted, right? Um, well, now the lens kind of turns to us. Um, here's, here's really the, the third person we could look at is me. That I killed Jesus. How on earth am I guilty of Jesus' death? It happened two year, 2,000 years ago. It's an easy answer. It's sin, right? Sin has its wage, its death. And if there were no sin, there would be no death. There'd be no need for any payment of anything. Everyone in this room is by nature and by choice sinful. You're desperately wicked and you have an ongoing debt that's accumulating. And I do too. I know that about you. I've lived long enough with my own self and with other people. I've only met a few of you. But I know that about this group of people. Now, here's what's funny. Even non-Christians completely buy into this. All you got to do is listen to little slogans that, that float around. Hey, nobody's perfect, right? I say, yeah, that's biblical. When do we say nobody's perfect? When we've just screwed up, right? Uh, I'm sorry I ran out on you. I'm sorry that it's been a lot of years. I'm sorry I missed most of your growing up. Hey, nobody's perfect. Really? Like, that's what you're going to give me is nobody's perfect? But we say that because we all are very crystal clear that we're screw-ups, that we sin. Even if we don't like the word sin, call it something else, we have things to work on, we mess up. So everyone gets this. Everyone understands this. So God is holy and without sin. We are separated from God because of sin. That's fundamentally what sin does. It separates. separates us from God. It separates us from one another. It separates countries from, from each other, Right? Sin separates and kills. So isn't it odd that we sing about and glory in and constantly remember and rehearse the cross? It is odd unless you remember why it was done. And if you remember why it's done, then you joyfully come together and you sing about it and you find yourself enraptured by the idea. Listen to... All of the for's, F-O-R's, in these passages I'm about to show you. I'll put them on the screen so you don't need to feel the need to, to write them all down. But if you understand and know that Jesus died for us, it changes everything. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. Isaiah 53, 12, he was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Romans 4, death for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, died for our sins. 1 Peter 3, 18, died for sins. For the unrighteous, 1 John 2, atones for our sins. Galatians, becoming a curse for us. You don't know how big John 19 is? The whole Old Testament points to this chapter to this passage that you guys are studying about. The whole New Testament looks back on and interprets and writes about this these events that we're talking about today. If, if we weren't separated by sin, there'd be no need for anything. As rebels, sinners, unrighteous, quite literally, there is hell to pay. And Jesus comes and picks up the tab. That's why Christians keep singing about it. I understand if you're new, that's weird. That just seems so odd. But if you understand the reasoning, it starts to make sense. You know, one of the clearest pictures of the gospel that's tucked away in in this Easter story, and you'll see it if you watch Passion of the Christ, you'll see it if you watch different commentaries and all this, is, is seeing the criminal Barabbas go free while the innocent one dies. You want to know how to explain the gospel in a nutshell? That's it right there. That little scenario. Convicted criminal, known criminal. Everyone gets it. Everyone knows he goes free while the innocent one, that the guy with the authority to stop the whole thing can't even find a basis to charge him, gets killed. That's the gospel. If you want to know more about what that is, talk to Philip, talk to other people in this room that understand it. But that's it in a nutshell. So the Jews plotted Jesus' death, but they needed help. Pilate authorized the execution by crucifixion, and some Roman executioners actually drove the nails into his flesh. Complicit in the murder of Jesus are people standing by shouting crucify, right? They didn't really have the authority, but they were there going along with it. And it was my sin that made this whole rescue mission necessary. All that said, ultimately, the one who killed Jesus is really just most unexpected. Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 for a moment. In Acts chapter 2, we see a sermon being preached soon after the events of this going on, within the lifetime of these events going on, interpreting what's happening in this, in this very moment. The overwhelming evidence of the Bible is that there has been a preordained plan set in motion by God the Father himself. He's sovereign over everything, and he, he put this thing in motion. If you want to jot this down, you could write down Isaiah 53.10. Isaiah 53.10 is a prophecy hundreds of years, 700 years before Christ was even born, prophesying about the suffering servant, the one that would come and suffer and die. It says this, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Some of you use New American Standard Version. It says that it pleased the God, that God the Father to do this. That it pleased him to crush the Savior. God initiated this plan, a rescue mission that involves sending his eternal glorious son to mankind in the humble state of a body so that He could open up a passage, a safe passage, be the gate, be the door to God through Jesus Christ, the one legitimate way to God. Acts 2 verse 22. Look at it with me if you're there. Talk about a hostile crowd, by the way. This is being preached to the people who killed Jesus. God killed Jesus. It was God's will. It was a definite plan. He did it on purpose. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. The he in this passage is the Father, the him is Jesus. God caused this. Why? It's really disturbing until you see the result. Here's the rest of that verse. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's why. That's the reason. Not only do we get free of our criminal title, we actually take on perfect goodness. The resume of Jesus, ours. We get to take on his perfect life. Let me close by pointing it back to us for a moment. The irony in this scene is astounding. You have a corrupt Roman official sitting in judgment on the one who holds all authority and all judgment. See John chapter five twenty-two. That's who Jesus is. Jesus, the eternal son, who holds all authority and on whom all judgment rests, is being judged by a puny Roman governor named Pilate. You have small-minded temple leaders clinging to power and working their ill-fated plan. It's kind of embarrassing when you read this scene. It's embarrassing, but it's also kind of eerily familiar, isn't it? I hope you have a a humble enough heart to receive that maybe you could see yourself in this story. When was your commitment to self-preservation of more weight and stronger than to that of justice and what you knew to be true? Pilate. That's who you're mimicking in that moment. You're mimicking Pilate, Waiting self-preservation over what you feel convinced to be true or where the evidence points. When have you last put God on trial? Stood in judgment of Jesus and his words? Again, Pilate. That's who we're mimicking when we do that. What kind of leader are you, God? How long, God? When, God? Now, the Bible makes great allowance for you to not be smitten right on the the spot and be judged for that. The Psalms are chock full of those questions. But aren't we standing in judgment of the very king of the universe when we do that? That's what Pilate did. When was the last time that you had a mock coronation ceremony for Jesus? I'll tell you how this might look in present day. It's when you gather with people and your words are just flowing out praise to King Jesus. And you might even raise your hands and close your eyes and do this big scenario all the while your life all week long is utter blasphemous to God. Possibly even your mind right in that moment is utter blasphemous to God. Again, that's Pilate allowing and joining in with the mockery and the things going on. Last one, ever throw Jesus completely under the bus? Ever do that and then sworn allegiance to to something else? That's what the Jewish high priest did. That's what Peter does later on, chucks him completely. I I swear to you, I don't know this guy. I hope that's convicting to you. That list creating was convicting to me. And I see myself in John chapter 19. Aren't you glad we get to celebrate grace this morning? Man. I am thrilled this morning that my ability to participate in this simple meal, this simple gift that Jesus offers to his disciples is not based on my performance, but on Jesus' performance. I'm glad it's settled and done. I'm glad it's unchanged by how your week's been. Jesus, as a good, caring shepherd, is providing for his disciples, and he knew on that very first communion, which we call the Last Supper, He knew that his disciples were in for a long, narrow, difficult road. And he offers them a meal to share, to remember. I want to just invite you to look back uh, this morning and think of the celebration of the gruesome death on a cross by Jesus for the finished work that went on there. And I also want to invite you to look forward because it's, it's a celebration of victory. It's death being conquered. And as we take together, as we let it roll over our mouth and participate in this, that we are proclaiming Jesus' death until what? Until he comes again. So we're straining our eyes forward. We're looking forward to that. Do you pray with me? God, thank you so much for this church. I pray your blessing over not only Philip, God, but um, just Becky and Roxy and uh, the elders and just some of the others that I have heard about and, and prayed for over the years. And God, we pray for this community. We pray that those sitting in this room would be used in a very profound and powerful way to administer grace in all of its various forms to this neighborhood. I thank you, God, so much for the story that you're writing here, the way that that intersects with ours and with other churches around this area. Father, we're desperate for you this morning. I pray that if we don't see that, that you would re-remind us or show us for the first time. In Jesus' name, amen.